0: there rock and rollers welcome to episode number 119 of the ugly american werewolf in london rock podcast brought to you by me your host mac b the wolf and i will be joined as usual by my partner in crime gary action jackson on the east coast of the usa and we appreciate everybody who tuned in last week to our show on coverdale page Great collaboration between the legendary Jimmy Page and White Snake, the purple frontman David Coverdale. Personal story for us, we were fans of it in college, we were so glad when it came out we had tickets to see them, but they went ahead and canceled that tour, I just didn't have the ticket sales that they hoped it would. But it was still an interesting album to review, and we're still very hopeful that David Coverdale will put out a 30th anniversary edition with some additional tracks. Hopefully, some of that live stuff from Japan, because they did do some live shows over there. So we can all be hopeful of that. But as you might know, if you're a long-time listener of the show, I used to live in London. I used to live just a few yards off of Abbey Road. And on episode 52... I told you all about how I got to visit Abbey Road Studios, take a tour, hear a lecture about the legendary recording studio, and it was a lot of fun. And one of the bands that made their name by recording in those hallowed halls was Pink Floyd. And it just so happens in the month of March... Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, one of the biggest selling albums of all time, a groundbreaking progressive rock album, is turning 50. It was released March 1st in the U.S., I believe it was March 16th in the U.K., so we're going to slide our review out kind of right in between there, but I remember sitting in Studio 2 just thinking, wow, the Beatles did amazing things here, and so did Pink Floyd. They recorded some of Dark Side here. Oh my god, I can't believe it. I believe they did some of Wish You Were Here there. They did a lot of the stuff in the 60s and early 70s at Abbey Road. And of course, we have done some great Pink Floyd reviews over the years. Our third show was on Delicate Sound of Thunder, the movie and live album, and we didn't really know what we were doing when it comes to podcasting, but we did our best, and we eventually reviewed A Momentary Lapse of Reason, the latter-day Pink Floyd, Roger Waterless Pink Floyd album, which was big for us because it came out when we were in high school. But a real highlight of our Pink Floyd life here was not only when I got to see Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets at Royal Albert Hall in London last spring, and basically sat on the stage. But Pantheon Podcast, of which we are a proud member, and you can check out at Pantheon Pods to learn about all of our fellow Pantheon podcasters, they sponsored Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets US tour. So not only did Jackson and I get to go to Indianapolis to see Nick Mason's Saucerful of Secrets live, and we reviewed that on our 100th episode last fall, but we got to have Guy Pratt, who was the man who replaced Roger Waters in Pink Floyd, and Gary Kemp, who's probably most famous for being in Spando Ballet, who are the front men of Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets, they came on show number 96. So we're happy to support Pink Floyd. We're happy to support Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. And when we heard that Dark Side of the Moon was turning 50, said, you know what, I know a lot of people are going to be reviewing this, but we've got to throw our two sets in there. And we're not going to get super technical, there's a lot of rumors, there's a lot of stories, and there's a lot of different ways to tell you how they made this thing. As usual, we're going to come at it from our own personal perspective, what it meant to us, how did we find it, did we see Pink Floyd? Yes, I did, in Tampa in 1994, and go track by track as we always do. Something we're not going to get into, folks, there's the old story that if you watch The Wizard of Oz and click play on, what is it, the second roar of the MGM line, is it the third roar of the MGM line, that it syncs up really well. We don't have time for that. We, we don't have time to sync it up and try to watch that and listen to it and see what it really means. It's nonsense. Alan Parsons and the band have debunked that. Many times over the years, okay? I don't know how many drugs you take or how much free time you have on your hands to figure out how that all syncs up together. If you do, God bless you. Have a day. We're not going to get into that on here. We're just going to dive into the incredible musicianship of Roger Waters, David Gilmore, Rick Wright, and Nick Mason. Not to mention the engineering of Alan Parsons, for which he won a Grammy for Dark Side of the Moon. But first, got to take care of a little bit of business. We are proud members of Pantheon Podcast, and we'd like to give shout-outs to the folks who have helped us along the way, who have been on our show, or maybe we've been on their show. And that includes Christy Alexander-Hallberg of Rock Is Lit, Martin Popoff of History in Five Songs, Paul Stevenson of This Day Rocks on Vintage Rock Pod, the CEO, Christian Swain, rock and roll archaeologist, Jay at The Hook Rocks, and of course, The Kiss King's, Tom and Zeus of the Shout It Out Loud cast and album review crew and Dorm Damage. And we're going to give them a shout out on this show. You got to listen to the whole thing to hear where, though. And we have to give a shout out to our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. RareVinyl.com is based in the UK. They've been doing it 40 years, guys, and they have over a quarter of a million items in stock, including some amazing Pink Floyd stuff. Pink Floyd stuff is always in demand, and they've got first edition stuff. They've got rare stuff. They've got singles from Japan, posters, tour books. They've got all sorts of great stuff. So go to RareVinyl.com or EIL.com. Use the code PODCAST. And you can save 10% off your order. So if you want that rare Dark Side of the Moon copy, whether it's a first edition or maybe it's from a foreign country or maybe you want one of the singles or something else, go to rarevinyl.com. Use code podcast. Save yourself 10%. They ship all around the world. They can get you what you need in pristine condition. Great folks. Definitely check out rarevinyl.com. So back to Dark Side of the Moon. You know We didn't get into Pink Floyd till we were high schoolers in the late 80s. Thankfully, they had released momentary lapse of reason and the video and album delicate sound of thunder so that's when we first really started to get into those dark side songs then we go back we listen to a lot of classic rock radio and songs like time and money and us and them and brain damage they're just part of classic rock they're on the radio all the time it never went away heck it was on the US billboard top 200 for more than 15 years sonically it's extraordinary musically it's groundbreaking. But you can start to see where divisions might start to be popping up in the band. After Sid Barrett left, and he was really firmly in control of the band, they went through a period of the band figuring it out as a collective, as a collaboration between the four of them. Later, it would become The Roger Waters Show, and then when he left, Basically, David Gilmour would be in charge. Those are the kind of four phases of Pink Floyd. So we're kind of right at the apex of the collaboration with Dark Side of the Moon. So it came out in 1973, and so did I. We're going to get down and dirty into Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd on its 50th anniversary right here on The Wolf. Obviously, everyone knows Dark Side of the Moon. If you grew up on classic rock radio the way we did, you can't avoid it, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you don't know which albums these songs come from, they play money, they play time, they play us and them. When we were growing up in the 80s, like they came out in the 80s, right? And then you kind of realize, oh my God, all those are from one album. I guess I have to get that. And then you found out at the time... It had never left the charts. It was on the charts consecutively in the U.S. from 1973 when it came out until, what, 1988, 1989? Like over Something 700 like weeks, you know? Yeah. Crazy. I mean, how did you, growing up in the, in Connecticut, how did you come to Dark Side and to these songs?
2: I think that, and I was trying to think about that, part of it was from Delicate Sound of Thunder, which mm-hmm. I pulled out and actually I pulled out my brandy new Blu-ray edition and put it on just to kind of get into the mood. Yeah. And as a quick aside, they do play uh, one of these days on that, which is not on this record, but right. I have to say that that to me, that was always the gold standard, right? I'd seen it a million times. i would watched the VHS tape, of them playing it live, right? Nick and the, uh, the gentleman from Saucerful full of secrets may have played it better. It was so good that night. It was so good. And it could have been just because it was – I didn't the, – the the Delicate Sound of Thunder was always on uh, tape, and this mm-hmm. was live. But it right. was so good live. So good live.
0: Well, same rhythm section, right?
2: Right, right. And, you know, Nick is holding down the, the fort on both of those – but yeah, it, it just it blew me away that night. That
0: was a fun night. Yeah, that was great, no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah, it was it was awesome. Yeah, but I mean, you're right. I mean, Delicate Sound of Thunder is where we heard more of those. I mean, it, and it, us and them, I thought was was great live mm-hmm. on Delicate Sound of Thunder. Didn't realize that it was a Rick Wright pen tune.
2: Yeah, and and Dark Side of the Moon was always that. Like you said, it was it was on the chart for so long, and there were like I don't know. It there there was always like urban legends around it like there was a there was a factory somewhere in England mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. And all it did twenty four hours a day was produce Dark Side of the Moon records. <laughs> and you you hear that, and you're like, in high school, you're like, whatever, that's stupid. right? Wait is there really a factory somewhere that just produces dark side of the moon? How cool would that be? So it, you know, back in the days before the internet, when urban legends could run wild, there was always, there was always mystery surrounding this record, you know, especially with, with uh, the legend of Sid Barrett. And there was a guy in the band and he kind of lost the bubble and, you know, they went on without him. And this was the, this was like their tribute to this guy. And, you know, in 2023, we don't do a great job still with mental health. And I can imagine back in 1968, 1970, 72, when they were making this, it, it was it was a scary time for them also, because it, it's one of their friends, one of their compatriots, who just he just lost it. Yeah, he
0: slipped off his cracker, man. In a correct.
2: Way. Correct. And, and you say to yourself, that's sad. And I really feel bad for my friend. But could I, did the same thing happen to me? I don't know. So it it it's sad and it's scary at the same time, and it's it's something that I'm sure a lot of people just didn't talk about back then.
0: Yeah, and especially in buttoned up Britain, where you know you just you don't talk about stuff like that, you know, or you talk about him. Oh, he's a loony, you know, stick him in the loony bin kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in '68, when it was obvious he was going downhill, and they got David Gilmore in the band to kind of, you know, pick up the parts where he wasn't playing much on stage and he was kind of zoning out or whatever. Right. Because for for a while, Pink Floyd was a five-piece and then eventually it was like, eh, should we go get Sid before the gigs? like, nah, just leave Mm, him. The the four of us can handle it. So they probably had... I don't know if regret's the the right word, but they probably felt a little guilty about that mm-hmm. because Sid drove the band. If there's the different stages of Pink Floyd, the first one was when Sid was very much in control, when he was the driving creative force behind the band with See Emily Play and Bike and Arnold Lane and all those kind of things. That's the Sid band, you know, the, the right. other guys were trying to catch up with him and then after he left, it was very much a collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, and this album, which comes out in 1973, three months after you were born, three months before I was born. You know, we don't know a world without Dark Side of the Moon, right? This was their big next step, and in kind of almost the end of the collaboration period. We're starting to get closer to the Roger Waters led period. I, I guess Wish You Were Here was still still a bit of a collaboration. Mm -hmm. Animals really wasn't. Obviously, The Wall wasn't. That's when Roger is firmly in control of the creative side of the band. But here they are in Abbey Road Studios, EMI Studios at the time, and they're doing some amazing experimentation, and they're not trying to do these long, drawn-out 10, 12, 15-minute songs. They're trying to take some of the sonic aspects that they'd already created in previous work, metal being the album previous to Dark Side that came out in 1971, taking some of that sonicness and then breaking it down into smaller bite-sized pieces, you know that that might be good on the radio, but then experimenting with all these cool little sounds and toys in the studio.
2: Yeah, they, had, they definitely had some new stuff. And we were talking to to Christian from the CEO Pantheon, correct? Yeah. From Pantheon, he he made a he made a comment about how things in the that were recorded in the 70s. Had a giant leap mm-hmm. sonically from the '60s, and you can definitely tell on this record they were they were going all in on this a lot due to uh, Mr. Alan Parsons, who we'll talk about a little bit later. But yeah, you can really tell that they're they're just going nuts. There's a lot of new toys, there's a lot of new recording ways to record things. I think they used all of Abbey Road. At one point in time they were in about three different studios, using it to its fullest capacity and you can you can definitely tell they've made a big leap forward on the the way it makes it sound. And One of the big things was quadraphonic sound at the time, which was the new, you know, bum, bum, bum. Like, I remember when stereo came out, you know, in the masses, and they were like, the thing is in stereo. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. So so the quadraphonic sound. And this is definitely one where you need either a decent hi-fi or put the headphones on, because there's things happening in front of you, behind you, around. Things are jumping back and forth uh, sonically. There's a lot going on here.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can hear things going left to right, but if you can mm-hmm. get surround sound where it can go left to right and front to back and all around you, this is one that was really groundbreaking here. And yeah, mm-hmm. Alan Parsons, who would, of course, go on to have big success as a as an artist, as a recording artist, and he had worked with the Beatles, you know, saw it in the documentary from Peter Jackson when he was kind of a clean cut you know, clean shaven in a suit kind of a guy. He actually won a Grammy for his work as an engineer on this album. I think it's the only Grammy. I think he's been nominated maybe eight or 10 times. It's the only one he ever won.
2: So what I wonder is, and I was trying to find this out, was there any kind of connection before this or was it just, hey, Alan, you work... At for EMI, you know, it, what you want to take this on, or did they have any kind of connection before that? I, I think he
0: may have worked with them on on some of their previous albums. He he obviously yes worked at EMI. He was an engineer there, mm-hmm. and the, the Pink Floyd had been recording at abbey road or emi you know since the 60s and they would bump into the beatles and talk to them and stuff like that so the beatles by this point had broken up now pink floyd's kind of one of the big residents there and yeah i think he had he had worked with them before but i mean you're right i mean look not only do they have new toys and new like synthesizers and stuff like that, but the 28 tracks, the Beatles had four and it was hard for them to do that. <laughs> it's hard for them to kind of, he and George Martin put that together. Now they had a 28 track and they probably used damn near all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and like you said, making it quadraphonic so it can spin around the room or it can go back and forth and front to back. It was kind of amazing at the time and 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 groundbreaking and i feel like that had a lot to do with the success it's not just the songs because if you think about it it's a little bit of a concept album right and they talk about it's stuff that make people mad and i don't mean stuff that like make americans mad like oh there's no parking space not mad angry i'm talking about mad insane Mm -hmm. crazy make you mad uh, kind of thing so and it was about the pressures associated with you know being in a band where you got a tour and you got to try to make money and then you got to try to make every year six months or whatever and you know reflecting on what happened to Sid mm-hmm. that kind of stuff but I mean if you really look at it because now Breathe and um I'm sorry what the first song is Speak uh, to Me yeah Speak to Me and Breathe when we were kids that was basically one song right you know, it was like, speak to me slash breathe right. in parentheses in the air. In subsequent later day pressings, they kind of separated those things out. So it was like a four minute song, but now it's speak to me is one minute. And it's an instrumental that has a lot of the background noise and a lot of the interviews that they conducted mm-hmm. where you have people talking and stuff. And then breathe is a Richard right? David Gilmore penned track. That's now a little less than three minutes with Gilmore singing, but sorry. So, right, so that, you know, it, there's a few instrumentals, right? You got mm-hmm. Speak to Me, which is more of... It's not even instrumental so much as soundscape. Right. You got On the Run, which is a pure instrumental. Any mm-hmm. color you like, pure instrumental. All right, well, that's almost a third of the songs on the album. Great Gig in the Sky is mostly an instrumental. It, it's Claire Tori, you know, using Music. her voice evocatively. Right. right. And, then, and then you got some Time, Money and us and them yes big hits and, and great songs and then you know brain damage is a bit of a loony thing you know uh, and and eclipse is kind of an odd way to to kind of end the album so
2: interesting that both of those those two tracks were all Roger Waters all Roger Waters mm-hmm. yeah but you can hear it yeah. correct yes yeah it right. definitely <laughs> takes a hard left turn after uh, any color you like that's right so it's although you know it's brilliant and when you put that that
0: soundscape, the quadraphonic sound with the sounds bouncing around and using the different kinds of noises and sound effects and things like that—it's ahead of its time. It's groundbreaking. It is cool. But then, if you kind of break it down, it's like, okay, well, there's you know, there's only really three or four songs on mm-hmm. here, like you know, so it, it is kind of surprising that it went on to sell what 50 million copies or something. Like, there's only like two or three records that have only have ever sold more. Mm-hmm. Than Dark Side of the Moon, and of course I, I dutifully bought one on CD once I, you know, found one at the right price one day. I'm like, oh, Dark Side, yeah, <laughs> I need that for the cl- can't you can't be a, a rock right. record collector right. without this in the collection?
2: Yeah, and and you can't you can't gloss over the fact that the the cover on this thing is just super iconic also i mean yeah. there are people who have never heard this record before that if you showed them that they would say oh yeah i've seen that before somewhere somehow it's just become part of the the fabric of everything that you see during the day and i think the deal was that it, it, they had a couple of different ones a couple different brought, what a couple different album cover concepts oh yeah, yeah. In. and it was storm thurgenson Thurg- thorgerson from hypnosis correct yeah. He said he brought in like 10 different options, right? See, I'm mm-hmm. all set up. Here we go. And immediately they just gravitated toward the prism, like every single one. I'm like, that's it. And he said, do you not even want to look at the rest of the stuff that I spent time on? <laughs> nope. This is it. So, I mean, he hit it out of the park, but I can imagine, you know, you're like, well, you know, it could be this or it could be that. No, it's the one thing and that's it. And the other awesome thing is that it doesn't say anything on it. You know that's Dark Side of the Moon. You don't have to. You don't have to put Pink Floyd. You don't have to put the album title. You know what it is. That's right.
0: Yeah, it's iconic, no doubt. Correct. It's
2: simple, mm-hmm.
0: and it's kind of become synonymous with the band. I mean, you, you, right. you put that there, and everyone knows exactly what it is. So we need to go ahead and get into the album. But you know, it, right. there's so many things been said about this album. There's a lot of people who are going to review it now that it's turning 50. So mm. we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. But something that I thought was interesting and we do research for these things and we don't know as much before recording these things as, as we do after we've done some research here, but they actually played it a year before it came out. They did it live. All right. So they did metal and they did, you know, big tour, uh, Britain, Japan, and the United States. They come back and they're like, okay, we're going to work on these songs. And then they, uh, they come up with this concept about things that make people go crazy. And then Roger's like, the lyrics we're using are a little indirect. Why don't we get right up in their faces? Which is kind of what Roger is known for Mm -hmm. these days. It's part of his legacy. It's like, Let's not beat around the bush. Let's be very clear. (laughs) Let's get right up in people's
2: grills
0: (laughs) and and tell them exactly what we think. And then the the band's like, all right, we kind of like Roger's idea here. And so Rick, who had a, I think he had a little bit of a, you know, some recording equipment in his house in Islington. Hmm. They start working on this. And I think, you know, Breathe came from something else they had done before. Maybe Us and Them, something else that he had made for Zabriskie Point or something like that. Yeah. And they went to a Rolling Stones warehouse in London and, and worked on some of this. But yeah, then they went out and played it. It was premiered at the Dome in Brighton on the 20th of January, 1972. So more than a year before it comes out, they go out and play this to the British press. And the usually nasty British press looks like they were like, wow, you know, Pink Floyd are really going in a new direction here. This is kind of cool.
2: Yeah. And I can imagine that, too, if they, because if you get into the, 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 Freak out psychedelic stuff. And now you're, like you said, you're very focused now on this one and very direct and to the point. I could see how the press would kind of have a change of heart on this. Although I can imagine if you showed up to a show and they played something totally new, would it be awesome? Or would you say, hey, wait a minute, where are the hits? Right. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if they played
0: that whole thing because it's, you know, it's only 45 minutes or 42 Mm -hmm. minutes or something like that. And then, like, okay, and now we're going to play something that you might know. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure. Another thing that surprised me was they wanted to call it Dark Side of the Moon, but apparently there was another band called Medicine Head that already had an album called Dark Side of the Moon. Now, I don't know Medicine Head. I don't know them. There's a new podcast on Pantheon called The Ugly Things that kind of go back and, and talk about bands from like the 50s, 60s, and 70s that you might not know, you know, British bands. So maybe that's something that they would do one day. But huh. I, I didn't know anything about them. And so for a while, they changed the concept name to Eclipse. And then once Medicine Head's album was a complete flop, then they went back to Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> so calling it Eclipse would have been different. I, I, I don't know if it would have hurt the sales any, but I feel like... Dark Side of the Moon is so iconic. I I mean maybe they would have only sold 35 million instead of 50 million. I don't know, but you can't disassociate
2: the name Dark Side of the Moon from Pink Floyd. Right. And the and the thing is too, you know, you think about what that means. And then it's it, it can mean what you want it to, you know. Is it is it about having mental problems? Is it about you know things that are that are obscure that you can't see? I don't know. It it to me that's that's much more. It's more iconic. Dark side. of I mean, eclipse is Whatever. Right. Anything could be an eclipse, right? Correct. Can call that that.
0: Yeah. And then they played it again on the seventeenth of February at the Rainbow Theater in London, and that's where there there were a lot of people there, so mm. and press people there, so. Then they had to go on a big, lengthy tour of Europe and North America, and then they took a break, and then they came back to eventually complete the album in early 73, and then it was released. I think it was released in America on the 1st of March, and then in Britain in the middle of March, right? Like the 15th or something like uh, that? Yes. Uh-huh. So we were kind of releasing this in between those dates and they had two different record companies and i think they did very well i mean i think they got a, a million dollar record contract in america to help okay. distribute this yeah. you know and then and then they got a lot of money <laughs> from this they got a <laughs> lot of money from this <laughs> i also learned on here that the band's road manager at the time was peter watts
2: mm-hmm.
0: and his daughter's name is naomi hmm. who, who just no, happens to, very familiar yes happens yeah. to be in a a fantastic actor, star. yeah, exactly, and a beautiful girl, yeah, absolutely. And I also didn't know because you can hear them uh, people talking like they're being interviewed, and I guess they they had some different questions, like when was the last time you were violent? Were you justified in using it? You know, yeah. And then they would give their questions. Well, are you afraid of dying? That kind of thing. Apparently, they interviewed Paul and Linda McCartney,
2: mm-hmm. who were
0: probably around recording some stuff for Wings. Yeah. You know, and the, and. They said, but they were trying to be funny. They were trying too hard to get on the record. It's like, no, nah, you
2: can't. We're not going to use you. Yeah, I want a real response, not shtick. Stop yeah, that. Exactly. Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast.
0: <laughs> so, all right, so then we can, we can get into it here. Sonically, you start off with Speak to Me.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: But at the time, like when we were growing up, it was all one thing. Speak to me, breathe. It's important to note that both sides of the album, there is no fade out from one song to another. There's no mm-hmm. clear stoppage.
2: They all kind of fade I into mean, each other, evolve into each other. You could really have, have done this as one track. Yeah, yeah, I, and, and I'm glad they didn't because it makes it more accessible to people. But yeah, you're right. It, it is, if you're not paying attention, it sounds like one big song. Yeah, I mean, you can break out time for the radio, I guess, mm-hmm. you
0: know. And, and look, yes, you know, for like close to the edge, they would break. I mean, it was basically one whole side of the album was one long right. song with different suites or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they would break out four minutes of something you could pop on the radio. So yeah, you could do that. Sometimes it's pretty obvious, like between the end of On the Run and the time, when you hear the ticking and stuff like that, it's like, okay, yeah. obviously we're into something else here. But yeah, even the first three, they all kind of run together. Speak to me, eh, I don't know if it should be its own thing. They do attribute the music to Nick Mason, though, so he gets kind of a, it's yeah. his own right on there, his own credit, whereas and you know, Breathe in the Air was, was Richard and, and was Rick Wright and David.
2: And apparently nobody can remember why that is that he gets solo credit on that it's just is that it right just happened. yeah that's what i i saw a couple of different interviews and I'm like yeah i don't know why that happened but oh well there it is but yeah that it, and it's nice too because it's kind of sets up there's a couple of sounds in there that they use you know mm-hmm. the the money sound there's clocks in there so it kind of sets you up for the rest of the things that you're going to hear in the record the screaming lunatic in yes, there that's, yeah that's a little disturbing especially yeah. to a teenager the first time you hear this you're like <laughs> what are we doing here
0: Right, right. So that morphs into breathe or mm-hmm. breathe in the air. And it, it that's very Pink Floyd. Uh, I think to me, breathe, you know, it's yes. very mellow. It's got David's voice on it. Don't be afraid to care run rabbit run that's something that we've just kind of become familiar with and it's it's pretty chill and it's something they did play i mean they, they would play it in concert they played it when i saw them in 1994 in tampa they played it and they also had a reprise of it okay. uh, you know like a song later or whatever so classic classic song you don't you, i don't know you might hear it on classic rock radio, you would generally hear the two of them together because, again, right. it was basically one track when we were growing up.
2: And and they start to put in this is where the the theme starts to come in about how you know you're talking about run rabbit run dig that hole when you're done don't sit down it's time to dig another one like there's that there's this underlying theme of the, the passage of time and and things starting to pick up and I wonder if you can be attracted to something. And not really know why. And I think it, it this I think they were like 27, you know, 26, 27, about that time when they made mm-hmm. this. And it's it's the it's the concept of when you're a kid, you're kind of waiting for life to begin. Like, okay, okay, so what you know, what's gonna be? What's what am I gonna be when I grow up? What you know, what is this gonna happen? And then you realize, wait a minute, I am an adult, this is life. Uh oh. You know, am I missing something? And and so I think. If you, it, most people get into this when they're in a, they're, a, they're a teenager, unless you're really cool, which I wasn't. But right, right, cool parents. Yeah, you kind of, you you're kind of drawn to that. Like, hey, yeah, wait a minute. When is life going to begin? What what is life going to be like? And and am I maximizing it or am I letting it slip away? You know, am I am I living my life to the fullest potential? And kind of the fear that you're not, that you're waiting for something else to happen and that that's just always the underlying current of this record i believe
0: yeah and it's uh and i it, even though this one was penned by rick and david it, it mm-hmm. it's very much in Roger's whole thing like you're just grist for the mill you're like yeah, you it, you gotta, you got to you got to dig that hole and then you got to get sleep, because the next day you got to dig another one you know it's right time to make the donuts right you just got to get <laughs> up and you do it again. And you do that until they're done with you or until, mm. you know, you've got enough of a pension or whatever that you can not do it anymore. And yeah, I'm I'm completely in tune with that, you know, after days of investment banking and days of doing startups where yes, I've made myself some money, but I made a lot of other people a lot more. And I'm like, well, now I'm almost 50. Do I get to look the way I want to look now? Can I Can mm. I have beard and a long hair? Or do I just have to kind of keep looking like the same old jackass that everybody else looks like. No offense. I know you got to be clean shaven for your job, but you know, uh, it's like, when, when do I get to, to enjoy my life? When do I get to do what I want to do? Right. You
2: know? And, and I think, and that's, that's part of it too. You know, you, you wanted to be in this band. You wanted the band to be successful. You've got all of those things now, but now I'm working 18 hours a day. And I've got people just, you know, where's the next thing? Either you're going to be on tour or you're going to make another record. And then you're back out on tour again. And, you know, people, I mean, again, you said you were making, you said you were making money for yourself, but also for other people. Same thing here too. Like, wait a minute, we sold how many records and this is what I get to keep from it. Exactly. I got a lot of people's hands in my pockets. Mm -hmm. And I know, and I know, part of this would translate into have a cigar on. uh, Wish you were here when it's you know you go in and you talk to the greasy record guy who's just like, "Hey, boy, you know what? Which one's big? Correct. (laughs) Get out of my face. And and yeah, it it's just that is this really what I wanted? And when when will this when will this treadmill stop or slow down or something? Maybe this isn't exactly what I thought this was going to be. rabbit
0: run, dig that hole, get the sun, when at last the
1: work is done,
2: round it down, it's time to dig another one.
0: And the answer is, after you put this album out, then you get to go do whatever you want to do. Yeah. The money <laughs> rolls in on this one. You know, And they all bought mansions in the country after this. But the third song on the run, I, it really kind of picks up here. And this is kind of where I call it the mechanical ecstasy starts with you can really hear they're playing with these new toys Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it sounds you know that kind of thing and it it really sounds mechanical and almost industrial in some ways and again you can hear someone running down the hall at the beginning of this using that those sound effects you can hear more voices and the the odd quadraphonic electronica where you can hear things kind of swirling around you it's groundbreaking yeah. It's cool, and you can kind of feel that. Okay, yeah, now it's, it's it's on the run is a great title for this because you can feel it's picking up like you're trying to keep pace with something,
2: right? Right. And it's, you're, you're, you're just frantic. Something is always happening. The vocal part at the beginning, it sounds like a, like a airport announcement or something. Mm -hmm. So it's that concept of you're always just moving. You're always, you know, again, you're either recording, you're on the run, you're on the road, you're back, you're going, I guess Rick Wright had a big fear of flying and dying in a plane crash. And yet I spend most of my life on a freaking plane now. So yeah, that's very, it's its very, it makes you very nervous all the time.
0: wonder if he even wanted to to record learning to fly before momentary David. lapse of reason. But David and Nick kind of got over that because they both became pilots. Mm-hmm. But this is one this is a Waters and Gilmore collaboration. Hard to imagine one of those today. But I guess My they favorite. were in better they were, they were in better place then. But you know you're right because at the beginning it does sound like something from the airport kind of announcement. Yeah. But the end of the song is a plane it sounds like it's crashing? Right? It's yeah, like it's coming down there, and that's kind of the end before it morphs into time. So that probably had something to do with Rick's fears as well. Like you, you're scared of flying. Well, let me let me put something on there that's really going to make you scared. You know, an actual guys plane are, crash.
2: You guys are jerks. <laughs> Although I guess the deal was that they were playing with those sequencers, which was the new big toy, and you know, speeding it up and slowing it down. And I guess Gilmore had a. Sequence that he wanted to use, and then Waters came in and said, No, 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 no I got something better. And were, eh, you know, what do you know? And then he played, and he's like, Yeah, no, that's a lot better. All right, so yeah. it, it is nice that you can say, You know what? I yield, I, that is better. Go ahead and use it,
0: yeah. And that's that's what a band should be. I mean, say, mm-hmm. No, I don't want to do this. Well, I do want to do it, and then you work it out and you get the best stuff out of it, right? If, if there's one person dictating, well. There probably will be some good stuff on there, but there's probably you know some stuff that you should have someone able to push back on you. Right, and right. And say, this is not our best, or this it could be done better. And someone's like, nope, my concept, you have to fall in line. All right, well, then maybe there's some stuff on a double album that comes out at the end of 79.
2: <laughs> I'll bide my time.
0: That isn't... As good as it could be, brilliant moments throughout. Yes, mm-hmm. great concept, but maybe not every piece is amazing.
2: Yeah, you you do wonder, and that's a whole nother rabbit hole you could go down. If everybody else was allowed to do a little more, what that what that could have been? Could it have been a little uh, not quite so dark? Maybe.
0: Yeah, yeah, and use utilize Rick Wright. I mean, yeah, he, he barely used him, and then he kicked him out of the band. I'm like, what is wrong with you? He he's a huge talent. He writes great songs. Great keyboard player, and I love his voice. I really mm-hmm. do.
2: Yeah, he does a really... He does a good job with Gilmore. The two of their voices together sound... They complement each other very well.
0: They do. And I, and so, side note here. Mm-hmm. Because while I was on the plane coming back to America, there was a great documentary on our buddy Chuck Lavelle, who is probably best known for being the piano player and now the musical director of the Rolling Stones. Previous to that, he was with the Allman Brothers. But... After Rick died, because when David went out and did solo stuff uh, in the 2000s, after the dissolution of Pink Floyd, Mm -hmm. Rick would sing the Roger part, Uncomfortably Numb. Okay. And then, obviously, Rick died. Yeah. uh, And then David wanted to go out and tour. So he picked Chuck up to not only play the keys part, but then Chuck would sing Rick's part on that song. Okay, And there was a... Bit in the film where the the backup singer is like, we all know that that Chuck can play the keyboard really well, but then his voice was like, no way he can really <laughs> sing. And then David came on and said, "Yeah, I think Chuck sang that bit better than anyone who had done it before." Now that includes any, Rick
2: Wright. Any, I was gonna well, but anyone, anyone though, even the original.
0: Well, yeah, I, I know it was supposed to be more of a jab at Roger yeah. than a jab at Rick. I know, and obviously this is a story about. It was called a tree man because he's a big tree farmer and is one like national tree farmer in the year because he's also kind of a, a conservatist and a, an environmentalist. You know, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a way to do it right. So great documentary, if anyone wants to see it. Has a lot of superstars in it. And it had Guy Pratt in it too. But anyway, I, I like Rick's voice. And then getting into the next song, Time, where Gilmore and Wright both sing. Mm-hmm. A little harmony, but both basically they're taking their time. I think that's part of the brilliance of the song is having both of them on there.
2: Yeah. And at the beginning, you kind of at, at coming off of on the run, you kind of think, okay, is this another instrumental? Because it starts off, you've got that, um, you've got Rick kind of floating on top with his keyboard stuff. You've mm-hmm. got Nick playing. I don't know what he's playing because it's not, he, it's his own part. It does. It's not, it's not keeping the beat. Right. He's he's doing the kind of the tribal drums in the, uh, in the background. And then you go into the vocals and you're like, wow, this is, okay, this is something different than you've heard before on this record. Yeah, and this is the only, I think it's the only one that was
0: penned by all four of them, right? So they, they all get credit yeah. on this. And honestly, they're all on fire on this, mm. individually and together. The four of them are at their best on this track, on the album. Because it starts off with the, the sound of the kind of Ticking clock. clocks yeah. and the alarms. It's all in stereo. It's all around you. And then there's that metronome yeah, going on. And then Roger's got that mm, bass in there. It's,
2: it's really kinda of, yeah, it's menacing at the at the beginning.
0: Yeah, it's it's iconic, but you're right, it is menacing, and that bass is so good. It, it's one of the first things that I ever really recognize as the bass. As we said on the show for so long, we're such big lead guitar freaks you know Mm -hmm. like that's the sound we look for that's the distinguishing bit of of most songs to us in rock and roll certainly in hard rock and roll that it i had to grow up before i really could pick out the bass and really understand its value and what it's doing there but this mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you can really see his contribution and the way it defines the song yeah Then, and, but you're right with Nick's drums, kind of just doing some sound color there. Yeah. But also, it is iconic, and, and especially in the run up from the the kind of bass to then taking away when they get mm-hmm. into to David's vocal. Yeah. His drums between that really are amazing.
2: Yeah. And 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 it doesn't it doesn't sound like anything else on the record either before or after. And so it kind of sets this one apart as really the first single. I guess, even though it wasn't really, it wasn't really released. I don't think it's a single at the time, but this was like the first real kind of standalone song on the record that
0: they would play on the radio. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I guess the singles were uh, were "Money" and and "Us and Them." Them, yeah. yeah. But I mean, this was played on American rock radio so much, and it's it's something I feel like everyone can relate to. Again, you're talking about we're talking about "On the Run." Is this? You know, am i maximizing my life am, am i doing what's best the lyrics here are so good and mm-hmm. so poignant and timeless which is kind of ironic it's about time and you could relate to I could relate to it when I was a teenager like oh I, I should probably be doing more or, you know I, I should be doing more for, for in school or I should be training harder or something right. like that or you know I, I should be doing more research into college now it's like yeah 10 years have got behind you and turned around <laughs> oh my god God, you know, I <laughs> I was forty and I was becoming a father for the first time. And now I'm fifty and I'm like, I'm I'm a I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning now, man. <laughs> right.
2: Right. And that that is definitely a big a big thing in your life when you when you turn fifty, even though I didn't think it was going to be, you kinda you can, things kinda come into focus a little more. And yeah, it's you know, it wait a minute. 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. What's what's going on here? You, you missed the starting to, gun. Yeah. And
0: then there comes David's guitar,
2: best guitar work on the album. In my e, you know, they, the, the big one, the big one is always comfortably numb, right? That's the big. So of course. This one, I think, holds up with that. It can yeah. pretty much go toe to toe. It's really good. And I kind of, not that I forgot about it, but I kind of, didn't really give it its just due on this, but he's just ripping it up on this one. No, it's
0: it's amazing,
2: man. And no. I think it's because
0: once you get into this album and you listen to it a lot, oh, man, listen, this is cool. Eventually, you kind of have to put it down because okay. to me, it's, it's just, honestly, when was the last time I listened to this all the way through? Mm-hmm. It was not in my 40s. It was not in my 30s. So it, it's been decades since I really sat down like, Okay, I'm going to listen to all of Dark Side yeah. of the Moon here. Because you hear time on the radio, you hear money on the radio, you, you hear some of these other things on the radio. So like, I'll get my fix at some point this week, this month from Classic Rock Radio. But to sit down and listen to this, I'm like, God, David's guitar is so good there. Mm-hmm. It, it's so good. The ladies singing background, and we should probably give them credit. We'll talk about Claire to- Torrey here in a bit, but Doris Troy, Leslie Duncan, and Liza Strike did the backing vocals, and I guess Barry St. John as well on, on some of these, but their contribution to this record is really important as far as the, the way the sound works, and sometimes it's just, ah, it's just that kind of thing in the background, yeah. but they're really good, they really help make this song.
2: Yeah, and I think that's, as much as Gilmore's guitar is the signature sound, of Pink Floyd, I think that those backing vocals are too. Like, it would not be the same thing. And and we mentioned before, getting into this with Delicate Sound of Thunder, they had backup singers there, mm-hmm. front and center. That was the other thing, too, I, I realized about Delicate Sound is everybody's in the front. It was yes. pretty cool. It's not like Gilmore is standing, you know, a butt- I mean, he's standing right next to Nick Mason. And he's standing right next to the backup singers. Like, everybody is, there is no... There is no hierarchy, or it doesn't seem like that in that in that setup, which I thought was still was cool. But yeah, the the that those female voices are are a very big part of this track, and then later on too, when you get into into uh, brain damage and then eclipse. That's right. Yeah.
0: No. And and you're right to mention delicate sound of thunder when they do this on that. The girls are badass on yes. this song. In that, I mean, they're sexy and everything. And, and they've got cool moves, they got cool choreography, but they're they're making the song, you know and they're singing their hearts out and I I, I you know look, I, I fell in love with Rachel Fury. I really fell in <laughs> love with all three of them but I say. But you see this song, you see them do it live. It's one thing to hear it, but to see it do it live, they really bring a a, a sexiness to it. Mm. because you know you think about time about getting older and missing opportunities and stuff like that that's not real sexy
2: here's but- here's the other thing that was not real sexy either on delicate sound of thunder it was what 87 88 when they did that yep. and all of the gentlemen are wearing very large oversized 80s suits right. a lot of a lot of white socks and loafers too i'm like oh boy you're gonna look mm-hmm. back on this these fashion choices were I mean, it's what was around then, but yeah, not super exciting. Whereas
0: the girls were hot with those form-fitting mini-dresses. Correct. I mean, was, Timeless. Just amazing. But I mean, Roger's bass is sick throughout because when I listen yep. to it again, because obviously I'm captivated by David's solo. So then, I'm like, mm. during the solo, though, I can hear Roger still plodding away on that bass. And I'm like, this is so good. The four of them together are so good on this. This is a triumph for them. Right. And, right. and then, and then there's that weird it, it, the ending, right? You think the song's over, but then there's this minute at the end of it that's like,
2: all right, it's not just you know, thought
0: I'd something more to say, kind of thing.
2: Right, and then I wonder that when they go into home, home again, is that coming home from being on the road, being from the craziness, and and you know, you're saying you want to get out of this town, you want to you want to maximize things, but. There is a point where I've been blowing myself out for months and months and months. It's nice just to come back to my house and just relax for two seconds and maybe enjoy that, you know, the hometown where you think, well, this is kind of a small place, but it's actually really nice here. Yeah. And I want to relax for a minute. And they have that great line, you know, going back to Sid Barrett about hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh. And that's just kind of accepted. That's, you know, what do they call it? The stiff upper lip. That's no matter what's happening, everything's good. Don't worry about me. Let's just keep going.
0: Right, right. Very waspy New England thing, too. I'm sure you grew <laughs> people around there <laughs> yeah. who are the same way, you know. Correct. Like, nothing's wrong here. Two <laughs> right. of your kids committed suicide and they died of natural causes. <laughs> I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> we don't talk about that. Yeah, exactly. All right. And then we move into what was at the time the last song on the first side, Mm-hmm. The Great Gig in the Sky, yeah. which is a Richard Wright, Rick Wright Penn song, but the uh, what makes the song is Claire Tony's soaring emotional vocals,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I guess amazing. Yeah, and I guess she when she came in there, there wasn't a whole lot of direction, and she went into like "Ooh, baby, baby" or something like that, and they're like, "No, we don't want. We want you to sing, but we don't want you to say any words." okay, let me try something else then. And apparently like she apparently she said Gilmore was really the only person who was giving her any kind of direction. Everybody else just kind of, you know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that that definitely does make it. And, you know, again, are we going back to Sid Barrett where she goes into the screaming parts? Which, I don't know, like she kind of, I, I don't know what happened there. Like, I think she made up some of it, but then they told her what to do. But to me, that sounded like, you know, you get to a point and then you just start to freak out right yeah
0: and it's is it is it the pain of getting older is it a great gig in the sky that kind of denotes
2: death right correct yes yeah. so once your time runs out you're moving on
0: yeah right so and so this is is it part of the sadness of leaving life is it part of you know getting on to the afterlife here or whatever so and i tried to just listen to the song without her voice mm-hmm. uh, and i think there's maybe a little
2: pedal steel from david it could be underneath there, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, and that's the whole thing with this whole record. If you if you really go and I mean, you could take out the pieces of it. There's a lot going on there. There's there's always more than you think. Well, there's 28 tracks,
0: so they could yeah. squeeze all sorts of stuff in there, right? Mm-hmm. But without her doing that, it's just a piano piece. I mean, kind of a nice piece, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's not nearly the same.
2: It's it's interesting you say that because <laughs> I was looking at this I was you know I I like to look at the the liner notes the whole nine yards and this is this is credited to Wright and Claire Tory. and I thought well that's mighty decent of you to give her writing credits on that you know I mean she made up the vocal part on her own great let's see go two thousand four lawsuit what is this yeah. oh wait a minute. <laughs> No, you didn't. You didn't give her anything, and then she sued you.
0: And then she sued you. And, you know, usually I'm always on the side of the band, and I don't mm-hmm. want people who write the music to get sued. But I, I got to say, the song, the whole heart of the song, the whole reason we know the song as it is, it was because of her vocal performance. And if no one said, sing this note, sing that note, she really did make it up herself, then, yeah, she did write that. And they did give her some settlement. And going forward from 2003 or 2004, whatever it is, she does get royalties on that, which is probably a nice little uh, annuity for her.
2: Not not bad mailbox money.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, I'm fairly certain when they played Nebworth in 1990, and they went on last, uh, much to the chagrin of Paul McCartney's manager who said, Paul McCartney's going on last. He's Paul McCartney, to which Pink Floyd's manager said, no, we just did the biggest tour in the history of the world, <laughs> and we're going on last. But I think she did come out and join them and then join oh. the rest of, the, of their backup singers for some other songs. So she kind of came out center stage to sing some of that, which is which is kind of neat. Also on stage with them that day, doing the saxophone, was a very young Candy Dolfer, who I Uh think had just kind of emerged on the scene with her sexuality record Mm -hmm. and beautiful Dutch woman who I got to see at the Paradiso in the last month there. And she is still kick ass and awesome to this day and still very foxy. So uh, shout out to Candy there. But (laughs) you mentioned that the guys wearing like the the loose fitting pantsuits with the shoulder Mm -hmm. pads. (laughs) She was kind of wearing the same thing, you know, Aww. well, you know, look, they weren't trying to over sexualize I mean she was young if in nineteen ninety we were seventeen or eighteen, she was maybe twenty, you know, so mm. she she was pretty young herself, you know these days they would have had her in a mini skirt in a halter top, or something like that but but back then she they they weren't trying to over sexualize her and so and she probably wasn't really in control of her own fashion and career at that point she was trying to Mm. probably following the advice of certain people so it's not like she looked bad but times were different back then let's just say
2: (laughs) it it is it is interesting to go back and look at some of the stuff some of the stuff works you know would work today and some of the stuff just doesn't yeah and that oversized uh like you said shoulder pads and yeah it's a suit but it looks like it's about four sizes too big for you no you have to understand that was the look back then okay yeah. Right. Go put your-
0: you don't have linebacker shoulders under there. You're a guitar player, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that broad shouldered, you know. It's it's okay. But that is the end of side one. Now getting into side two, you start off with money again, right up in your face.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, to me, I don't have to look at the notes to know that Roger Waters wrote this one. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> obviously, you know, and and David sings it. But you know they have all the sound effects, like the you know the change hitting the thing and the ripping mm-hmm. of the thing and the the cash register doing, and then it it sounds like a bunch of noise. But then all of a sudden there's a certain rhythm to it, and then Roger comes in with that big fat bass, yep. that iconic bass, and then we're we're often running on an incredibly classic song.
2: so totally unrelated to this and i don't know why he asked me this the other day but my son said something about how did they how did they like edit records before digital i said well they had to actually physically take a razor blade and cut the tape and then that's right. join it together and i guess parsons was saying that's about seven different sounds that you hear, you know, between the cash register, the change, other stuff, that you he had to manually kind of paste together so that they would all fire at the same time. And I can't even imagine the the technical skill it took to put that together to make it sound coherent on this giant reel of tape that you're working around this machine.
0: I don't even want to think about it to be yeah. honest with you, because I, I look at the pains I go to <laughs> to to edit just the two of us, it's basically two tracks and then a third for like sound effects and the song snippets that we put in there, you know, that I'm making for dozens of listeners around the world. (laughs) I guess it should be hundreds, but whatever. And, and, you know, I'm just like, this is a real labor of love, but then to do it with that tape, yeah. my God, what an arduous, difficult process that must be, man. Uh, And and to
2: think about, no, I I understand what you want to do and, and I can make that happen and, and to have, and that's, and I know Waters gets, he's maligned now because he's he, hes kind of a, well, dick. he's always been a, well, he's, <laughs> and then he's got some, right, he is a dick. And then he's got some uh, political views that are very, very not cool. Right. And so, but he really is, at one point in time, let's put it this way, he really was a genius to put this stuff together. It's just, you know, I think he's fallen off the, yeah. off the plane of reality, I guess.
0: Yeah. And you know, I mean, he, he's he been a solo artist for, you know, 40 years, basically not really taking anybody's advice. Mm-hmm. He's been divorced three or four times, which, you know, which shows you he's not easy to live with. But he's he's right on it here. Because, yeah. you know, money is, you know, it drives so many things. It's obviously in America, just driving everything. It's kind of sad. Some great lines in there. Think I'll buy me a football team, you know, <laughs> give me a Learjet, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. What I didn't realize is, you know, because there's that kind of line in there. Is like, don't give me that do goody good bullshit. Sometimes you would hear that on the radio in America, and sometimes you wouldn't. You'd say mm-hmm. they do goodie good bull, and then mm, it would fade yeah. out. Apparently, they had the single, and they had one side of one side with that and one side without it. I always just kind of assumed that the DJ. Because I think you gotta pay a fine in America if you if you say something nasty on the radio.
2: So they would just kinda of, you thought they would just kinda of manually They would manually
0: mute they, it out or something yeah. like that. But it's not like they would mute the whole song because you could still hear the music in the background. It shows you what I knew about how things work. But still, I, I always thought that was that was odd, but it's like, yeah, sometimes it's on the song and sometimes it isn't. And and so even into the eighties, I'm like, they're still playing that old forty-five or whatever. On the radio, like that's how mm. they get it. It's not on, its, maybe it was, they converted it to its eight, but it's like, yeah, they, they still have the version, the, the quote unquote clean version there. So, uh, and then maybe they would play it after eight or nine o'clock with the bullshit. But if you played it during the day, it was just bull.
2: Yeah. I guess it depends on who's listening to the FCC is out there always trolling the waters. That's for sure.
0: But this featured Dick Perry on the saxophone, pretty iconic
2: sax yeah it just yeah i've got the i've got it just kind of rips through when it comes in because you've got that like you've got the the waters you know boom 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 boom. and then the guitar ring comes in yeah that kind of comes in and then the sax just rips it up it's fantastic
0: really is yeah really good of course being delicate sound of thunder fans we can't get the image of the power super mullet out of our heads correct correct uh, unbelievable hairstyle of the ages right there. Um, okay. So then that's that's kind of up in your face, money, that kind of thing. Then we move to us and them, which is mellow. Now, it's kind of heavy, you know, because it's talking about the haves and the have-nots of society. Right. And, and in an English society, which is still a very much a class society. Yes. But it is a beautiful song. It is a kind of a gear shifter from the kind of straightforward in your face money. And you're right, ripping sax. But in here the sax is more for the most part, it's it's more pretty, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, it just it floats in there nice. Yeah. It's it's very it's the same instrument, but it's very, very it's calmer. This whole thing is calmer. And you know, we talked about this before you cut you come in from money, which is waters. Mm-hmm to us and them which is Rick Wright. Yes. And then it's just yeah, it's it's a perfect change of pace. It's not it's not the same thing. It's not dark. It's not it well actually it is a little dark. Yeah. But but the music is is very calm. No, you're right. No,
0: and look, these are longer songs. I don't know if they truncated them on the singles.
2: I mean, money's over six minutes long. I, th- I think so. Yeah, I think there are. They they do have a single edit of these things.
0: They do. Okay, yeah, because because us and them is is almost eight minutes, and like mm-hmm. they're you know that's not a single length. There, it also seems to be a, a bit of a forebearer to uh, on the turning away.
2: Could be. Yeah,
0: you know, because uh, it's kind of some of the same issues. But again, the ladies' voices, the back, the backup voices on us and them here. Very powerful, really helped make the song.
2: And apparently they, they recorded the Rick recorded this by himself in I think studio three on the piano because that was the classic uh, classical setup. So they mm-hmm. wanted they wanted it to sound like that. And he would listen to the rest of the band playing in the other studio in his headphones so they, uh. they could get it synced up. But apparently and this is according to to Alan Parsons, they there were one or two takes where they put a tape on and he didn't know that. So he's in there concentrating, and they're sitting there watching him. And then he turns, and he's like, whoa, uh, messing with me. And they're like, oh, yeah, Wonders of Studio Magic. That's interesting. I did not know that.
0: But I do know because, uh, as you know, we did a uh, – episode number 52 was about my chance to visit Abbey mm-hmm. Road Studios and hear a lecture. And I didn't get to go into a Studio 3. Studio One is ginormous, and it's kind of where they record soundtracks, and like where John Williams and the orchestra okay. might be. Studio Two is pretty darn big, and that's kind of the Beatles hangout in there. That's They've kind of made it famous, mm-hmm. uh, and, and obviously Pink Floyd worked in there as well. Studio Three is is a lot smaller, and it probably is where... You know, Rick would would have recorded that, and I think it's upstairs. So the the setup is it's it's massive studio too. It, it's it's like a two or three story room, but it's all one big open space. And then there's steps upstairs to the control room. I think the control room used to be downstairs, but then uh-huh. they moved it upstairs. And I think that upstairs there is is where Studio Three is, kind of like down the hall, so they could. You know, Alan and the gang could have been in the engineer's room and mm-hmm. they just kind of waltzed down the hallway and like looked <laughs> through the window or, or, or been in the control room there to kind of see what he was doing. That that makes sense.
2: And it's and it's amazing, too, because, I mean, you said you went in and took the tour. I mean, we, we went and and I stood in front of the place mm-hmm. and looked at it and you would never think it was that big from the outside. Yeah, it goes back.
0: Yeah, and, and it also goes down. It, it's okay. it's
2: long and it's deep.
0: Yeah. And if you see pictures from like the '60s when the Beatles were there, it wasn't as built up around it either. I mean, it's a residential St. John's Wood neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They have built obviously. All there's there's no except for a park. There's no like empty space there. There's streets and then there's homes and they go straight up. But it's I think it's it's a really strong message without being Roger strong. Is what I say. It's not up in your face people are dying in the streets uh!" it's just like you know there are those in the world who don't have what we have and you know we have to you know we, we need to take time to resolve this or you know do something to help them you know where it's not in-your-face Roger Strong, but it is a powerful song
2: message. Yeah, and, and definitely some heavy-duty themes in there, more than one theme to think about. It, and unfortunately, because there's a note here that says uh, the first verse is about going to war, how the front, how on the front, front line we don't get to communicate uh, with one another because someone else has decided that we shouldn't. The second verse is about civil liberties, racism, and color prejudice. The last verse is about passing uh, passing a tramp on the street and not helping Right. This was in 1972, and guess what, people? Still all those it's things all hanging around same. today? <laughs> Correct. Yeah.
0: Out of the way. It's a busy yeah. day. I've got things on my mind. I, right. can't, I can't give you money that would just be, it would buy me a cup of tea that might keep you alive. Yeah, mm-hmm. I got stuff yeah. to do. I do notice, being back in America, there seem to be a lot of more panhandlers about in certain areas. It seems like we are in rougher times than the press might want to make
2: it seem Mm -hmm. and 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 if you go to if you go to big cities especially on the west coast it is it's it's out of control now it's something we got to do something because we can't go on like this
1: hi guys this is chris slade drummer of acdc
2: and many others and you're listening to the ugly i mean really ugly werewolf in london
0: All right, so then they get to the next, the last instrumental on the record, Any Color You Like, which was penned by everyone but Roger, which is interesting to me because it's not like Roger doesn't play on it. Mm-hmm. So Rick and Nick and David wrote this bit, and they probably it came out of a jam together. I like the guitar work from David on this, but it's kind of a funky little thing
2: yeah it, it, this is almost like a this is almost like a psychedelic callback is what I've got on here. This is more like it doesn't it doesn't really sound like anything else on the record, but it does kind of to me sound like more old school Pink Floyd.
0: Yeah, so when they started off Pink Floyd was a pop band you know with two minute songs about Arnold Lane who runs around stealing girls' panties off the clothesline or you know <laughs> talking about his bicycle or you know odd little things. Then they got into this heavy, you know, going to UFO club and stretching out these things and getting Mm -hmm. the metal and stuff like that. Echoes, you know, which is 20 minutes sweet or whatever. They became this psychedelic thing. So this is maybe, like you say, a bit of a callback using some of that. I guess the the name, Any Color You Like, was supposed to be a knock on consumerism, like having choice but not really, you know, it's like, yeah, you can have any color you like, but it's the same thing. And we're going to charge you the same, you know, it's like, you get a toaster, right? It makes toast. You can get it any color you like, but it's still a toaster, you know? I mean, not one that I would skip, you know, because you don't really skip anything. again, they all kind of, one melds into the other. So there's no real need to, to skip it. And there's, there's some cool stuff on there. But this is not a standout track on this album to me. No,
2: it's it's just it's just a little. Well, it's it, it's it's you don't know it at the time, but it's setting you up for for the the big finish here. I mean, it's only three minutes and 28, 26 seconds is what they have it listed here, and it's it's a nice it's a nice segue.
0: to Brain Damage, which is definitely one they play on the radio and mm-hmm. is very poignant and is fairly obviously about Sid. But it's it's Roger singing now, right? I mean, right. David does most of the singing. He basically sang everything except for the bits that Rick sang mm-hmm. along the way, not to mention what Claire Tory was doing on Great Gig of the Sky, but like David's the singer, and then all of a sudden now Roger's the singer whos who doesn't have an amazing voice, but it is distinct.
2: Right. And it also it when you when when you hear it on the radio, because I heard it the other day in in preparation for this, it sounds weird to me now come by itself. Like it really does need to go with everything else with with what comes before it. And much like Speak to Me, Breathe, Brain Damage Eclipse was always one song to me.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, it, 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 it makes it easier to take. I yeah, feel like uh, brain damage, uh, because it, it is kind of. I mean, it's it's obviously about Sid, mm-hmm. and was this Roger worrying about his, you know, worrying about himself going crazy? Is it just kind of a, a statement on mental health? Is it yeah? Well, we used to have this guy and he was great, and now he's gone. Whatever.
2: Yeah. I don't yeah, know and and there there's interesting there's interesting concepts in here about you know like having brain surgery and you know doing things to to correct the problem and do any of those things actually help you know there's someone in my head but it's not me i mean it's mm-hmm. this it's a very very we don't really talk about this but in society but it it's very i can imagine it's very painful to go through as an individual but also as somebody who is associated with this person you know it's it's your it, it parent or child or friend or something like that with what is happening to this person they're slipping away they're becoming a different person altogether
0: right right we're losing this person and correct if if it's about stuff that makes you go crazy you know aging and and working yourself to the bone can can drive you mad can can make you go nuts chasing after money Mm -hmm. you know can can make you go nuts make you do things that you don't want to you know Trying to decide: Do I get the red car? Do I get the blue car? Do I get the green car? Mm-hmm. You think this is oh, this is fun, but really it's kind of driving you nuts for for no reason, kind of thing, <laughs> you know. And so it's like there there is kind of this theme. It's a little loose in some parts, but this theme kind of bringing it together. And when he sings, "The lunatic is in my head," and you hear the kind of yeah, maniacal oh, laughter. It's a little scary, you know. Yeah. It's, it's definitely off-putting when you're younger and you're not really sure what all that means.
2: The lunatic is in my head. <laughs> the lunatic is in my head. You
1: raise the blade. You make the change.
2: And maybe maybe you think to yourself, have I heard that laughing somewhere in my own head? Uh-oh, what's going on? And
0: obviously, this is where the title of the album comes from. And I got to say, I, I kind of like that. There's nothing wrong with having a title track that they sing the song and the name of the song or the chorus is the title of the album. hmm Lots of people do that. There's, there's nothing wrong with it, but I do think there's something kind of cool about it that it's a line in the song, but it's not the name of the song because you know, when the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. You know, when when your band leaves you behind and you go nuts, that's kind
2: of the thing there. And, and, and it's, I was thinking about that too because I understand what he's doing there, but I never, listening to it as a younger person, I never took it that way. Right. And, and because I didn't really understand what he didn't was saying. It. Yeah. But I just like that. I like that concept of when things don't go, you know, things aren't always going to go your way. And sometimes you have to divorce yourself from situations. And I just like that, you know, I'll see you. Okay. This isn't working out. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. I'm out. I'll, yeah. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, and there is that, that, just kind of that cutting ties and, and doing something that is for yourself. Yeah. You know, and, well, they kind of
0: reprised it again, right? Like uh, uh, with uh, On One Slip has the line "a Momentary Lapse of Reason. They didn't name the album One Slip. They didn't right. name it Learning to Fly. They named it Momentary Lapse of Reason, which is a cool line. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. kind of buried in the record, you know, for those who aren't as familiar. Yeah, it's uh, it's an iconic tune. Roger's voice is not incredible, but it's... But it, wor- uh, it works for the it song. Works. It works yeah. for the song, yeah. Don't need David to sing this one. And then the last one... Eclipse
2: mm-hmm.
0: A lot of people Could have sung this song Roger wrote it Of course To me This is by design The last song On the record Okay You know It's like Sometimes yeah. it's a throwaway, Sometimes it's a fade But mm-hmm. this Seems to me It wraps it up And it kind of builds To a conclusion here That that's what The song is for In my opinion and all that dislike,
1: And everyone right, And all that is now.
2: And all that is go, and all that's to come And everything and under the, the sun, sun, sun is in you And the sun is a cliff spot And I would, I would agree with you too. And if you, if you listen to the end, there's the heartbeat on the way out, which was the heartbeat on the way in mm-hmm. to speak to me. And so it ties it all together. And, and just that the, the crescendo at the end, and he says, you know, and the sun is eclipsed by the moon and then boom, that's it. And then, you know, you kind of think, okay, scene, that's the end of this thing. That's right. That's exactly
0: right, you know, and it's it's the way, and sometimes radio stations here in America would play both of them, or they Mm. might even play the sweet, any color you like, brain damage, Eclipse, but a lot of times they would play both, You, you would, because it's only about two minutes long, you usually wouldn't just play
2: Eclipse. I don't think that I've ever heard it by itself.
0: Yeah, you would play at least the two of them together. So sometimes you hear any color you like in Brain Damage. Sometimes you hear Brain Damage in Eclipse. I don't know if I ever heard all three of them together, unless they were just playing the whole damn thing. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's kind of a good way to wrap the album. Now, Mm -hmm. this is some personal notes here. Oh, right. Everyone knows, or at least Pink Floyd fans know, when they released their live album Pulse on the back of the Division Bell tour, Pulse featured them playing the dark side of the moon in its entirety in order okay now that's become a pretty popular concept Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of bands will do that they'll take one of their most popular albums and play it in its entirety front to back i've seen rush do it with moving pictures i've seen the cult do it with electric Uh, i've seen a lot of bands do that over the years some critics think that sucks or is cheesy. I think it's pretty cool because this is the way you've listened to these songs for decades, right? And it's it's cool to hear them perform that way. Mm -hmm. To the best of my knowledge, that's the first time I'd ever I ever that that anybody had ever done that. Okay, I'm sure there were some people who had done it before, and obviously they did it. They ran through it in 1972 before it was even recorded. So I don't think it's they were the first people to ever do it. But in my world, that's the first time I ever really. Saw that happen. Now, I was fortunate enough to see Pink Floyd on that tour, on the Division Bell tour, at the Big Sombrero in Tampa. Mm-hmm. Okay. They were not doing that at that point of the tour.
2: They oh, didn't do that till
0: later. Yeah, I, I don't no. know if they didn't do it until they went to Europe or something like that. But they weren't doing that at that point. Now, they were doing a lot of songs from Dark Side of the Moon, as mm-hmm. you would expect. Right, right. So about halfway through, and it's a great set list. You know, the, they, they, they opened with Astronomy, Domine. And they did a lot of songs from those two albums, Momentary Lapse and Division Bell. Mm. Then they did One of These Days and Shine On, You Crazy Diamond. Okay, so they do Breathe, Time, and then a Breathe Reprise. Squeeze High Hopes in there, then they do Great Gig in the Sky. And then later they do uh, Us and Them and Money. So you know they they always they were always going to do some of these songs live, uh, and I guess they just at some point said yeah let's do the whole thing and then it was captured on Pulse and I had as you will recall a laserdisc player I had the Pulse video on laserdisc mm-hmm. <laughs> later in the 90s and I watched it into the 2000s don't have the laserdisc player anymore but I still have the disc uh, so if anyone knows a good deal on a laserdisc player. Uh... <laughs> shoot it to me i was it part of the latter years i don't know if it was or not because i was so oh, concerned uh, ab- yeah because i got that big box set but i was so concerned about seeing delicate sound of thunder live i don't even know if i paid attention to see if pulse was in there or not <laughs> well, yeah now you can and, go back and look i know i know and i'll tell you last fall when i had just moved to amsterdam and figured i'd be there two or three years i bought tickets to see roger waters at the ziggo dome because he has announced this is his kind of farewell tour. tours like okay mm-hmm. this is it He's 79. It's time to get off the road. I've seen him twice. I saw him do The Wall in its entirety. And then I saw him do, he made a new record. And so he went out and just did hits with an incredible band, an incredible light show, and, and, and props and all this. It was amazing. It, it's really a spectacle. It really is. But I'm not living in Amsterdam anymore. So I'm going to sell the tickets. And honestly, since his stance on the war in Ukraine, yeah, I don't want to see that son of a bitch anyway. To be
2: yeah. honest, yeah, yeah, he he's really to me, the, especially the stuff recently, he's really kind of tarnished him. I always love, I always love Pink Floyd. I always love, especially you know the David Gilmour delicate uh, sounds, momentary lapse, and and this record is great. But yeah, it, he's really not made a whole lot of friends with that rhetoric of late. No, and he he went and spoke to the UN
0: Security Council on behalf of Russia, I got two words for you, Rogers. They're not Merry Christmas. No, (laughs) Jesus Christ, you know. And and, and here's the thing, so as soon as the war in Ukraine Ukraine broke out, Pink Floyd, as it was, got back together, you know. Right. David, Nick, Guy Pratt, uh, another gentleman whose name is escaping me who, who did the keyboards, and then they had a Ukrainian kind of rapper come in. Now, it's not very Pink Floyd. It's not something that, Fits in with their catalog and not something you listen to, but the point is it's raising money. And when I saw Nick Mason's saucer full of secrets in Royal Albert Hall last mm-hmm. spring, Guy got on the mic to say, You know, got to give all due respect to Nick for saying, Look, if we do this and we put the Pink Floyd name on it, it's going to sell. The money can go to help people in Ukraine and it will create awareness. You know, mm-hmm. like we could just put out Nick's saucer full of secrets, it won't do as well. But if we put David on it and put the Pink Floyd name on it, because Pink Floyd was done, they were never going to record again, certainly weren't going to tour, but they did this to benefit people. And then Roger comes out and does the opposite. Now, to give fair time, Mm
2: -hmm. when Roger
0: says that the news we get is not 100% the actual news, I know you're right. Roger. Okay. The stuff is scrubbed. And like when we go to Afghanistan and on our TVs, they show us bombing military stuff and taking out guns and weapons. We're not seeing where we accidentally bomb people's homes and we kill children and stuff like that. That might get covered on Al Jazeera, but Mm -hmm. you don't see it on Western media. You just don't. They block that stuff out. So I understand that a lot of stuff is scrubbed. But fuck you for fighting with the Russians. Are you (laughs) kidding me? With Vladimir Putin? What the fuck is wrong with you? All they do is lie. Okay, that's all they do. We have some truth in what we say. Mm -hmm. Their whole system is built on stealing shit. Like their banking system. They said, well, it's mafia. No, it's not mafia. It's just the way it is. Yeah. (laughs) Ever since communism, it's just stealing shit. They're just all a bunch of thugs and criminals. Not not every member of Russian society. Not all Russians are bad people. I know that. But the people in charge. Yeah. That's the only way you get in charge is by murdering people, robbing them and threatening that kind of stuff. It's the way it's always been. And that's exactly who Vladimir Putin is. and you're on his side, mm-hmm. it's nuts. And like when he came out against Alan Parsons for playing Israel, he's branded as an anti Semite because he doesn't like Israel because that land was taken from the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, it's just like the Nazis. They took the Jews' land and property, and the Jews are now taking the Palestinians' property. I'm like, okay, it's not quite that black and white. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, to an Israeli, to a Jewish person, you can't be pro-Palestinian without being anti-Semitic. Right. I I don't know if that's true or not. I I don't really have a dog in the fight. seems like the Palestinians should have some of their own land, but I don't want to wade too deep in those waters because, you know, I I don't know every little piece of it, and I'm not an anti-Semitic. So... I don't get in that, but I mean he, he got in, Ro- in Alan Pars's face, do not play Israel, you know, don't do that kind of stuff. And there was that Twitter spat where Polly, David's wife, really got up in Roger's face. And yeah. he was like, You're anti-Semitic, you're a son of a bitch. You know, she was she was all this and David's like, Yep, all been proven proven true. And then you, yeah. you texted me, he's like, So I guess that Pink Floyd reunion is out the door. I'm like, that was never gonna happen anyway.
2: <laughs> Well, it, well, wasn't there when? Because when he, when Waters did the wall by himself, there were a couple of shows that Gilmore showed up to and played. This, this was years ago, but there was always kind of that. Well, maybe they will, you know. No, time wait. goes, but now forget it.
0: No way, no. David, when they did G eight, you could see David was. I was like, come on, come on, put your arm around me. And David's like. Yeah. all right fine and then I, I saw you know something like they happened to be in the same studio or in the same place one day and roger's putting his arm around david's like, yeah yeah how's it going david's just looking back at him like i still don't like you you know <laughs> kind of thing you can just see that on his face like he's smiling but it's that smile like i that really wish bike. i was anywhere else right now you know so if anybody wants my tickets to the Zigo Dome on april 4th in amsterdam Let me know because I'm going to sell those things. I am not going to that. But I would go see David Gilmore in a heartbeat. And I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's going to happen. David's also about that same age. He doesn't need money. And I don't think he needs the adulation anymore. And, you know, I know Phil Manzanera, who's a great musician who's toured with him a lot, could still tour with him. But without Rick Wright, I don't know. I don't know if he, and if he comes to the States, I'll definitely see him. I think he would prefer to stay in Europe and play like those old Roman amphitheaters and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We'll see. But I mean, if Pink Floyd's done, that's fine with me. I would love to see David Gilmore again. But this album, look, man, sold 45 or 50 million copies, something like that. I mean, they say one in 14 people in the UK has one, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: which is like, Five million. Pretty impressive. But if one in 14 people in America have it, that's like 24 million copies, man. That's unbelievable.
2: And that's, and that's why they had to have that where, at that factory working 24 hours a day to get <laughs> those right. copies. So let me ask you this question. We, If we said on an earlier episode that Marvin Gaye's What's Going On is the number one record in all of history, mm. this has got to be number two.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, it's... It, it, you rank things and that causes controversy and then people say no it's not that it's something else it's just because of the reach of this thing you know it's yeah. hard to deny I mean what's going on was poignant and important mm-hmm. uh, and reflected what's going on in society this does too kind of from a very different perspective but when you look at the certifications double platinum in Argentina
2: mm-hmm.
0: 14 times platinum in Australia that means it sold a million a million records when there were only 20 million people, you know, living there. Was it double diamond in Canada? Holy shit. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, double platinum in Germany, platinum in France, platinum in Belgium, six times platinum in Italy, 16 times platinum in New Zealand. Now that's only a quarter of a million sold, but still that it's, it's like one in every 15 people has one, you know, platinum in Poland. Who the fuck was platinum in Poland? You know, I mean, 15 times platinum in in the uk 15 times platinum in the us and they have stopped basically counting it because <laughs> they don't want the tax man to know how many they sold you know it's <laughs> it's at least 45 million i bet it's between 50 and 60 and you know top one number one or number five top five all of the world south korea got into the top ten you know i mean mm-hmm. it's, it's it's crazy the reach of this thing is unbelievable. And like we said, from seventy three to eighty eight, it never left the Billboard Top Two Hundred. And then when it did, it went straight back in and you know, it has been for like a thousand weeks, including yeah. like remasters and reissues, a thousand weeks in the Billboard Top Two Hundred. You'll never see anything close to this ever again.
2: Right. And and the the fact that you can it it basically is one or maybe two pieces in this whole thing. There are stuff that you may not love. But mm-hmm. there's nothing that falls flat. Everything fits together. It's a theme. It kind of was the blueprint for a lot of stuff to come after it. True. And all of the, everybody's firing on, on all cylinders on this record. All the musicians, all the backup singers, the, the lyrics are on point. The music is on point. It's, I think Nick Mason said it was the first time they ever felt confident enough to print the lyrics on the liner notes. Because mm-hmm. they, were, they were so impressed with, with what he had come up with.
0: Well, and it would kind of start to mark the end, the beginning of the end of Pink Floyd. Because when you have all this success, Mm -hmm. suddenly you're a little fat and happy and you get to just listen to the people who tell you that you're awesome, you know. And while they did, it was still fairly collaborative on Wish You Were Here. Roger was kind of elbowing his way to the front a little bit more, right? And then Animals, which is based on Animal Farm, you know, very much about communism and And Russia and that kind of thing. Obviously, that's another concept that he was in charge of. The wall is completely his baby. Mm -hmm. And he obviously, when he left after the final cut, which is not good. (laughs) I know some people said, Oh, well, will you review Final Cut? It's turning 40. The answer is, I don't think so, guys, because that's just not my favorite. I remember watching the video for it on MTV when I was a little kid. I was like, oh yeah. I'm going to watch this. I'm like, what the hell is this? (laughs) This, This music isn't good. And why is the guy like in the shadows talking into a microphone? I don't get it. When he left and then Pink Floyd decided to go on without him, he sued the shit out of him and they sued him. And there was all this thing and momentary lapse almost didn't come out. Then eventually he realized he was in the wrong. They were allowed to continue without him. But he sued them for the rights that he was the only one who could perform the live, the wall. In its entirety, he's the okay. only one who could do it, and they're like, Fine, we don't want to do that anyway. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll play bits of it, but we don't want to do that. Interesting that Jeff Tate of Queensryche also sued them, he's the only one who could do Operation Mind Crime live in its entirety because that was kind of his bait. Okay. And, okay, and our buddies on Album View Crew, Tom Zeus and Sonny, did Operation Mind Crime on one of their episodes recently, and they talked about that so. That's, yeah, that's kind of interesting. That's
2: a band that got real ugly in a hurry, too. Oof, 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 yeah,
0: oof. I know. That's that's a whole other story. But listen to the album review crew on Shout It Out Loudcast okay. to learn more about that. But yeah, so so Roger owns that, and of course he had the big thing at the Berlin Wall after it fell, that had like Paul Carrick on it and a lot yeah. of great musicians, and a couple of those kind of became hits in 1990, especially uh, "Hey You." Did well from that, but yeah, it's it's. It's an amazing statement. It's an amazing record. It sold incredibly well, but it, it sparked a change and a little bit of a rift that uh, that ended up breaking the band.
2: Yeah, and and it's it, there was a there was a I think it might have even been from Waters saying they could have just walked away after this record, just dropped the mic and said that's it for for Pink yeah. Floyd, and it would have been interesting had the had the wall not come out. What people would have thought of that, because you're right. Once The Wall showed up, you knew that was Roger Waters. He was in control. This was no longer really a collaborative band. It was one guy telling everybody else what to do. And now Roger has apparently reworked The uh,
0: Dark Side of the Moon. Kind of on his own, I think he's kind of brought it down, made it a little more spare, done maybe more acoustic stuff on there. And he's like, to kind of bring out the tracks, I I think he just wants to... He wants more credit. He wants more attention. He's doing this tour, his farewell Mm -hmm. tour. So he's going to break them down and maybe do them a little bit differently. I'm a little curious, but do we need it reworked? It's fine the way it is.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And back to, do you even want to really support him at this point in time?
0: No, because his tickets are expensive, man. And I've bought his records from Pink Floyd. I bought at least one of his solo records. So he doesn't need my money anymore. I'm selling the Ziggo Dome tickets. All the best to your ride. <laughs> well, that is the Ugly American Werewolf in London rock podcast, episode number 119, folks, on Pink Floyd's 1973 classic, The Dark Side of the Moon, one of the biggest selling albums of all time, an iconic album that really experimented with soundscapes and really pushed the band and progressive rock and rock music in new directions, hit new heights that we haven't really seen since. In some ways, some might say that The Wall was an even bigger triumph, but it was just less collaborative. That was basically all Roger Waters, plus David Gilmour's contribution on "Uncomfortably Numb. But you can't deny the selling power over 50 million copies sold worldwide. And songs like Time and Money and Us and Them and Brain Damage, songs that have just been on classic rock, have been in our ears and our brains for 50 years now. Don't know a world without Dark Side of the Moon, and I don't think that we ever will. And as usual, folks, we want to know, do we get something right? Do we get something wrong? Do we miss the point? Do we leave out your favorite part? You've got to let us know. You email us, uglyamericanwerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet us or DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. We might be on Facebook. I'm not really sure. And we want you to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. be it Apple, be it iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, PodBeam, wherever you do it. And if you're thinking about it, guys, hey, put out a positive review of the show. It just helps us find more rock fans like you and helps us grow the show. Thanks, as always, to Pantheon Pods, of which we are a proud member. You can go to www.pantheonpodcast.com to learn more about all the other great shows. We also want to thank our incredible sponsor, rarevinyl.com. Go to rarevinyl.com right now, use the code podcast, save 10%. They have an amazing collection of Pink Floyd stuff, some Dark Side of the Moon, but all sorts of great stuff from over the years. Definitely check it out. Save some money there. Add some killer stuff to your collection. Don't even know what we're doing next week, folks. But that just means you're going to have to tune in and find out. So once again, please subscribe Please download. And to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe.
1: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football